We're delighted that you're here. And as already been mentioned, uh, this is Holy Week, and today is uh, known as Maundy Thursday. Maundy, M-A-U-N-D-Y, comes from the Latin word mandum, which simply means commandment. Because it was on Thursday night uh, that Jesus gave a new commandment to his disciples, that they should love one another as he has loved them. So it's always been a time to think about love, love for one another and his love for us and our love for him. And we'll do that. Uh, we want to finish up our lesson from last week, though. And I think we did we not leave off around verse 14 somewhere. Uh, 13. Anyway, uh, we talked about um, this uh, all of that discourse, which is the little revelation, if you will, the little apocalypse in the scriptures. You find it in Matthew 24. You find it in Luke 21. Also, it's a very important section. As a matter of fact, this teaching of Jesus in some ways informs our hermeneutical framework or interpretive framework of the book of Revelation. And those of you who studied Revelation with us may remember that, that we took a little bit of a look at uh, the Olivet Discourse to try to help frame Revelation. And that last week we passed out these very confusing looking grids. And that's just to make you grateful that we're not going to spend any more time on it. <laughs> but it does... It does show you there are several different ways to interpret. Obviously, I'm going through quickly with an interpretive grid work in my own mind. And uh, we're not spending any time on it. We did that in Revelation. You can go back and listen to those CDs if you want to. But uh, this, all that discourse is very important because Jesus is on his way to the cross. Uh, he's on the way to the end of his life, the destruction of his body. And this hope for him is extremely important. And he takes his disciples aside just a few, literally a few hours, less than 100 hours before he's going to lay down his life on the cross. And he tells them about the grand conclusion of history and about the future judgment that's going to come to Jerusalem. He's just getting ready to die himself. Judgment's coming on him because he's bearing the sins of all of God's people. And he's talking yet about the judgment of the, the city, the judgment of the nation of Israel, judgment of the temple and of the end time when God will make everything right. Now, why is this so significant? Well, we're, we're told in the scriptures that Jesus joyfully endured the cross and scorned its shame. Why? He endured the cross because of the joy before him, the writer of Hebrews says. And Jesus always had victory before him, always had joy before him, always had triumph before him. And the grand conclusion of history was before him. And being seated at the right hand of God was before him. And I want you to know that that's the, the key to living uh, uh, an optimistic life, an effective life, a successful life is to know who you are, whose you are and where you're going. It also helps to know where you came from, but certainly to know where you're going. And when you know that, that gives you the equipment you need down deep inside to face whatever your trials are. It's exactly the way Jesus did it. So in this last week, one of the major, the major teaching, if you will, the longest teaching that we have in that week, uh, that holy week was the teaching about. The judgment and the end time. Well, let's pick up, I believe it's at verse 14. If not, we can scroll ahead. Uh, is this C? Uh, and his judgment will be severe. We have seen that his judgment is sure and that our persecutions are going to be sustained. There will be many of them. That many will try to deceive us. Many will abuse us in the church, in the state, in the family, and in the world. But his judgment will be severe. And you pick it up with verse 14 and it says, when you see the abomination 
that causes desolation. Standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down or into the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. So you see that biblical prophecies will be fulfilled. He says the abomination that causes desolation. If you read Daniel lately, you've seen that phrase in three places in Daniel. In chapter 9, chapter 11, chapter 12, the abomination that causes desolation. And certainly uh, Daniel was foretelling an abomination that was going to take place in the Holy of Holies. The Greeks actually did it. They sacrificed swine there. And they put up a false image and made it a place of worshiping Zeus. That's called an abomination. And it caused desolation to the temple. It corrupted the temple so that when uh, the Maccabees defeated the Greeks, drove them out, reestablished the temple, they had to cleanse it, go through many ceremonies, going all the way back in our Old Testament. Father, how do you cleanse something and make it sacred? And they had to cleanse it of the abomination. Well, what Jesus is saying is there's another abomination coming. And it's, it's very, uh, uh, very uh, much in accord with what Daniel is prophesying in chapters 9, 11, and 12 and so on. Well, uh, historically, to tell you what happened a few years later, this is exactly what happened. Now, there was a threat in 40 A.D. when Caligula, you know, we've had, a, I think, a movie about Caligula here not too long ago. Pretty bad empire, uh, emperor. Caligula, Caligula threatened to put his own image in the temple. That was averted says Josephus, the first century historian. But Josephus goes on to tell us what actually happened in the year 67-68 A.D., right before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And Josephus tells us that the zealots, the Jewish zealots, overtook the temple and were carrying out some of their murderous acts right there in the temple. And they were walking around the Holy of Holies. The zealots apparently just... I don't know what their theological background was, but they were on, on this event, but they were completely taken over the temple and had, had made it a place of murder. The, the final straw was when uh, the uh, zealots made a clown, the high priest, literally, a, sort of a court jester type person. And when that happened, the Christians who believed the words of Jesus Christ, when he said when this happens, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Verse 14, the Christians actually fled. And now normally in the ancient world, and it's true today too, but especially in the ancient world, if you were to flee for refuge, you fled to the city for protection. In fact, you know, in Jewish, in the Old Testament, you, you have cities of refuge, places where you could go to, to avoid having your life taken out of revenge. The cities were typically, all around the world, places of refuge. Well, here, the opposite is being said. It's very ironical. Flee from the city when this begins to happen. The Christians believed Jesus Christ. They remembered his words. And so when the clown took over as high priest, they recalled this abomination that causes desolation. And they fled to the mountains of Pella, which is across the Jordan River. And during this massive destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., basically no Christians were killed because they'd all fled because of the prophecy. So Jesus was clearly talking about that event that occurred in 70 A.D. and it, in fact, happened. 
So biblical prophecies will be fulfilled. You find in Jesus' life over and over again, even his own character, being born of a virgin, all the rest. It, it's a result of prophecy. It fulfills prophecy. He was constantly fulfilling prophecy. And this was true also with the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, let's look at verses 17 through 19. We're going to see that human suffering will be unprecedented. He says in verse uh, 17, how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. So uh, if you if you were to read Josephus on this, indeed, hundreds of thousands of people were murdered in the most gruesome ways imaginable. It was absolutely grotesque. Uh, and so the human suffering indeed was unprecedented. Notice we're talking about Jerusalem. Uh, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. That's what's being predicted here. Then thirdly, notice that God will have mercy on the elect. No matter how severe the trials, God has the elect uh, on his mind. Look at verse 20. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ or look, There he is. Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. So he says, but for the sake of the elect, the sufferings will be shortened. Deceit will not work against the elect. And we are duly warned of everything. And that's exactly what happened. The elect generally left Jerusalem. Now, notice that whenever God's judgment comes, there is always a way of escape for his people. When judgment comes upon Israel, remember, uh, if, you, if you look at Isaiah, you'll find there's always the, the remnant. We found that in the minor prophets, always the remnant. God has his heart on his people. Sometimes his people are in a church that's revived and on fire. And most of the people in that church actually do trust in Jesus Christ. Many times in history, the church has a few believers in it, but generally speaking, is corrupt and dead and unbelieving. And God's judgment will come on such church. But those who are believing, you have nothing to fear but God himself. Fear God alone. Don't fear for your own safety. Don't fear for what's going to happen to you. Just fear God. And he takes care of his own people. And it's exactly what he did in this most massive of destructions of Israel. He had mercy on his people, and he always will. Now, so we've seen... That God's judgment has been pronounced. If we look at verses 34, uh, 24 through 27, we're going to see that Christ's return is predicted. And uh, this is debatable. This is one of those places where interpreters will disagree. But it seems to me, and it seems to most of the scholars I'm reading, that there's a shift from verse 23 to 24. In previous verses, he's been talking about, clearly talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. But here he comes to talk about the end time. So he's remember we said that when you look at them uh, at the mountains, you see several ranges when you're far off. There are actually several ranges, but it all looks like one range when you're away from it. Here, here we go again. We're looking at the future and we see 70 A.D. and then we see with the return of Christ. It looks like one mountain uh, range, but it's actually two ranges here at verse 20, 24. Let's pick it up. And he says this. But in those days, following that distress. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. 
At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Well, certainly, it sounds very cosmic, doesn't it? That's the reason most people do see a shift. But there are some, you may remember the word preterist, who believe that the prophecies were really about 70 A.D., including the book of Revelation. They would say that this language, the Son of Man coming on the clouds, is simply a figurative description of the judgment of God coming in on the people of God. That's uh, possible, but I don't think it's likely when you look at the cosmic sort of references that are being made there. Now, first of all, let's look at A, the Old Testament foretold it. If you look at Isaiah chapter 13 and chapter 34, you'll see where this language comes from. And in those contexts, we seem to be looking at the end times. The Old Testament foretold it. That's exactly how it's going to happen. All the promises of God that would be in the Old Testament. All the promises in the Old Testament are applied to the people of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So if you're promised a land, you're going to get a land through Jesus Christ. If you're promised a nation, you're going to have a nation. If you're promised a place, you're going to have a place. If you're promised a future, you're going to have a future in Christ. Paul was saying all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. So there are no promises applied to an ethnic group, even Israel, apart from faith in Jesus Christ. All the promises of the Old Testament come to us through Christ. Through faith, Paul says, we are the children of Abraham. So you're not just a, being a child of Abraham by DNA means nothing, says the Apostle Paul. What means something is to be a child of Abraham through faith in the seed of Abraham, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you get into Abraham and get all those Old Testament promises. And that's the reason that the return of Jerusalem at the end of time is so important. That's where all the promises find their fulfillment uh, for us. And we will be the recipients of it. So the Old Testament foretold it all. Now, B, it will be glorious. And this son of man image, of course, also comes from Daniel. Jesus is recalling this great image in Daniel 7. And it will be a glorious coming. It won't be a... It won't be a secret that nobody notices. You don't have to wake up tomorrow morning and wonder if you missed it. <laughs> you know, people who have a pre-millennial, pre-tribulational view believe there's going to be a secret rapture. You know, and I know so many guys my age who say when they were growing up, they'd go downstairs and they couldn't find their parents. And they thought, oh, no, rapture took place. Well, I've been left behind. Believe me, when Jesus Christ comes back, if you're left behind, you'll know it. And when Jesus Christ comes back, if you're trusting in him, you're going to know it. The whole cosmos is going to know it. The sky is going to light up from east to west. It'll be, a ma- it'll be the major event of the entire cosmos. It's what the cosmos is moving toward. It will not be a secret. It will not be quiet. Uh, it will not be unnoticeable. So it will be absolutely glorious. And because of that, when he comes in his glory, he will transform us to be like him in his glory. It will be a major event. Thirdly, It will be a saving event. He will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds. You will be taken out of all your distress, taken out of all your financial problems, taken out of all your relational glitches, taken out of all your sickness and disease, taken out of all your problems with your body, taken out of all your grief and sorrow, taken out of every all of this, taken out and delivered into a a new society that is completely transformed. And gentlemen, uh, this is not pie in the sky. This is real. And if you're not living for this, you're missing out on life's deepest secret. 
that brings joy and happiness and purpose to every man's life. This is it. And Jesus is telling us about it before he goes to the cross. This is what he goes to the cross to win for us. This is the whole story. It's the reason he goes to the cross. He goes to bear all of the wrath of God so that we don't bear it anymore. So that we have his favor and his pleasure for the rest of eternity. And he's telling us this is what's been won by the cross. This glory that he brings to us to save us. Now, let's look thirdly at verses 28 through 37. And we're going to see that our obligations are here prescribed. What difference does all this make? Here's the so what of all this. Let's look at it. Verse 28. Now, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. I tell you the truth. This generation will certainly not pass away to all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven or the son, but only the father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. All right, I think we get the message. Uh, our obligations are prescribed. First of all, we must learn how to read the signs. He says, learn this lesson from the fig tree. He's basically saying, if you see the Son of Man now going to the cross, if you see him dying, you know that the end of the age is coming. You know they were right on the precipice of the end of time. When you see, of course, uh, after this, the resurrection take place, a dead body coming out of the grave after three days, you should say, something is happening here. <laughs> this, is a, this is a sign. You know that something really important is right on the verge of this. Uh, the cosmos is right on the verge of something really significant. So he says, learn to read the times. How do you read the times? You read the times in light of the resurrection. That we are on the verge of consummation of all of history. Therefore, all of history has meaning. It's moving toward a conclusion. And you learn to read it in light of God's overarching purposes for his entire world, which is to glorify his son and to give his son many brothers. And we're the ones through faith in him. That's the purpose of all of history. You can't just look at history objectively, so to speak, without any frame of reference and understand history. You have to look at history from some perspective. What's your perspective? The Bible's perspective is that God created it, that he's ruling over it, that he's bringing it to a grand conclusion, that he's going to judge all of sin, he's going to save his people, and it's all going to glorify him, all of it, creation and redemption and consummation. That's the meaning of all of history. So when you look at anything in Memphis or in our country or around the world, it's all interpreted in that grid. That's how we learn how to read the signs. Now, you'll notice he says uh, this interesting phrase, verse 30. I tell you the truth. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. And you say, uh, preacher, excuse me. <laughs> Was it, does that not there say that that generation, that is, people living in Jesus' time, will not pass away before everything here is going to be fulfilled. That's a problem, isn't it? Well, that's the reason that some people believe that all of this text has to do with the destruction of Jerusalem. Because the destruction of Jerusalem did happen in the generation that Jesus was speaking to. So it's a very strong argument for the preterist point of view that everything has already happened that Jesus foretold in the Mount Olivet Discourse. But other scholars will say, look, this phrase, uh, these 
things, and you pick this up especially in Luke, you'll see how these things have to do with these things referring to the destruction of Jerusalem. Because that was the original question. When is all this going to take place? When are these things going to happen? Remember the question at the beginning of the chapter? And the disciples are asking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And Jesus then is saying in this text, going back then to that question, that this generation will not pass away before these things happen. You want to know when it's going to happen? In your generation, he's saying. So I think the best way to look at this is that you have inserted verses 24 through 27. That's an insertion about the grand conclusion of history into this overall argument about what's going to happen with the destruction in Jerusalem. I think that's the better way to understand it. But you, you take your pick. Here we are. We must learn how to read the signs. B, we must be ready at all times. This is the point. Be ready. What happened in Pearl Harbor? We weren't ready. What happened in 9-11? We weren't ready. Don't let it happen to you. <laughs> be ready. Realize that it's going to come. And this is not evil that's going to come. It's the judgment of God that's going to come. And you'd be silly not to be ready. The parable of the wise virgins in Matthew 25 is about those who were ready. Some were ready and some were not. Those who had oil in their lamp were the ones who were ready for the, for the master to come at midnight, for the bridegroom to come at, at midnight. Those who had no oil in their lamp were out of it. So be ready. Have oil in your lamp. Holy Spirit is really you know, symbolized by oil, if you will. Have the Holy Spirit in your heart. Take Jesus Christ in your heart. Be ready. Be looking for him. We're told that those who are saved are those who are looking forward to his coming uh, in, in, in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. So we are to be those who are constantly ready and we are uh, expecting him. We are looking forward to his return. Uh, we must be ready. Thirdly, we must seek the return of Christ. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. Gentlemen, that doesn't mean that you have to stay up all night. It just means that if he comes in the middle of the night, you're ready. You're eager for him to come. Your life is in order. What are you doing that doesn't fit with Jesus Christ and his kingdom? What are you doing or what lifestyle you're living that would cause you to be ashamed when he's coming? Get rid of it. Live your life in the light of his imminent return. That's the way we're to live life. When Jonathan Edwards, the greatest theologian ever in this country, was 18 years old, he had several resolutions. One of them was... Live my life as though Jesus Christ comes back today. Now, on the other hand, let me put it to you this way. Martin Luther one time was asked, if Jesus Christ were to come back tonight and you knew it, what would you do? He said, plant a tree. <laughs> what? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, just live life. Just go on and live your life. In other words, your life should be in order. So that all you need to do is... Balance your checkbook, plant a tree, love your children, have a nice dinner, and wait for them to come back. You don't have to scramble around, do all these different things, get ready. You're already ready. That was Luther's point. What do you do if you know he's coming back tomorrow? Plant a tree. What, what's the big deal about what, what, what I have to do? The big deal is that he's coming. It's not that I have to scramble around and get ready for it. Why don't you scramble right now and get your life in, light, in, in, in the line with Jesus Christ. Live in the light of His coming. That's what He's saying. That's what it means to believe chapter 13. It is to get your life in line with His coming. Be ready for Him. And then, gentlemen, as we said during our study of Revelation, if you fear His coming, 
let me put it this way. If you dread his coming, something, I promise you, is wrong with your eschatology. I don't know exactly what it is, but something's wrong. Because when your eschatology, that is your view of the end times, when your view of the end times is biblical, you long for it. You don't dread it. And some of the uh, unfortunate teachings that have taken place about the end times have created tremendous dread and fear among people wrongly so that they dread his coming. It's just the opposite of the way the church is supposed to be. So if you dread it, something's wrong with your mentality, either about eschatology or about life itself. On the other hand, <clears throat> uh, Jesus is not Santa Claus either. Uh, one time, uh, one of our pastors, Ron Sadlow, was teaching a children's message about God. And he, he said in the middle of the message, he said, you know, kids, sometimes God is kind of scary. And kids were kind of looking at him like this. And after the service, I told Ron this later, one of our mothers came up to me and said, now, should our pastor have said that God is scary? And uh, should our children be hearing this? And I said, well, you know what, uh, ma'am? Uh, I think God is kind of scary, don't you? I mean, he's, he's awesome. He's powerful. He judges sin. He's coming back. Wouldn't you think that you could maybe say it's a little... And she said, well, I guess so. Should, but should the children hear this? I said, absolutely. The children should hear God as he is. And sometimes we have actually distorted and perverted the view of God because we thought our children needed Santa Claus instead of Jesus. And we've made God out to look like Santa Claus, some harmless old man with a long beard. And that is not what God is at all. So you're, mis- you're, not, you're, you're miseducating your children when you do not teach them God as he is. And if your children are putting their trust in Christ, believe me, they have a lot more resilience than you think they do. And we are supposed to cultivate both a fear of God and a love for God. And they go together. It's reverential love and it's loving reverence. And without that, you don't have a proper view of God. So with our children and grandchildren, of course, we teach them how awesome God is, both in his judgments uh, and in his love. Okay, when Jesus finishes the, this fabulous uh, discourse on the end of time and the destruction of Jerusalem, then we have this wonderful story in Mark 14 about the anointing at Bethany. And this is an extremely important passage. It actually begins what is technically known as the Passion Narrative. The Passion Narrative in Mark includes chapters 14 and 15. And I'd like to put up here on before us, and you have it in your notes, the Passion Narrative that is in Mark chapters 14 and 15. The first 11 verses that we're going to examine this morning have to do with the plot to betray him and the anointing. Those go together, as we'll see. The plot to betray him and the anointing. So the, the, the type is cast, if you will, in those first two verses in chapter 14 for the Passion Narrative. And then in verses 12 through 52, we have the betrayal and desertion by his disciples. So we look at the betrayal of Judas and the desertion by his disciples in, uh, in Gethsemane. So you have the upper room in Gethsemane in the latter part of chapter 14. And then we move to Jesus' suffering is from the hands of the Jews and the hands of the Romans. So first of all, he suffers at the hands of his own disciples in their betrayal and, and uh, their desertion. And then he suffers from the Jews and the Romans. In the latter part of chapter 14, he is before the Sanhedrin. And there Jesus is condemned by the Sanhedrin. Mark is clear to show us 
that he is declared as Messiah in that meeting, though. So he is condemned as Messiah before the Sanhedrin. Then when you get to chapter 15, he is condemned before Pilate in Pilate's tribunal. But Mark is clear to show us that he is declared king of the Jews before Pilate. So he is condemned as king of the Jews. Then you get to verses 21 through 47, and there you have the crucifixion, death, and burial. But you have the centurion who's saying, surely he was the son of God. So he's crucified as son of God. So Mark, in a very careful way, is showing us who Jesus is. And, of course, the grandeur of all of this Passion Week is precisely because it is the Lord of glory who is suffering and then ultimately crucified and buried for us. So there's this tremendous contrast between the lion and the lamb, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, that Mark brings out in chapters 14 and 15. So that's the general outline that we'll be looking at for the few weeks that we'll have to examine this passage. Now, this morning, I want us to look at verses 1 through 11 and uh, grasp how it is that if you understand what Jesus Christ has done for us in the Passion, if you understand what he's done for us on the cross, what ought you to do about it? If you really if you really get it, what does it mean for us? And I think that there's no better passage than the one before us today to show us. Let's look at it. Verses one through eleven. Now, the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. First of all, let's notice that Jesus loved us passionately against great opposition. When Jesus came to love you and lay down his life for you, this was not easy. It was not easy physically. It was not easy spiritually. It was not easy emotionally or intellectually. Jesus was constantly looking to the Scriptures to give Himself encouragement. He was constantly looking to the Scriptures to give Himself uh, a framework for understanding what He was doing so that He was conscious at all times of doing His Father's will and of accomplishing uh, the Father's will of rescuing us from uh, damnation. So He loved us against great opposition. Notice in verse 1, the timing was profound. This was the Passion and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread just two days away. The the Passover was a passionate time for the Jewish nation. It was a time when they all, one of the three major feasts, they came to Jerusalem. They remembered uh, the 
Passover uh, of God's people from the death angel by the blood of the lamb put upon the lentils of their of their homes. And here they would remember that, that God passed over uh, his people and did not judge them because of the blood of the lamb. And that would remind them also of the great promise of deliverance by the exodus. And they would look forward to a Messiah who one day would come and spare them. It was a time of great passion, especially when they were under oppression as they were with the Romans. So Passover was a very heated time. It was, it was, like, it was like a combination of Easter and July 4th put together. That's what it was like. So it was very ironic, isn't it, that Jesus came to suffer at such a time of, of joy and anticipation. Secondly, you'll notice, notice that the circumstances were ominous. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. And you notice at the end of the text that Jesus, uh, that Judas rather, goes out to betray Jesus to the chief priests, and they took great delight in his betrayal of the Messiah. So, in the midst of this, uh, Jesus is doing his work for us. In the midst of all this, he is loving us and caring for us. It's an amazing thing that when he is suffering at his most, he is loving us. At his best. And then thirdly, you'll notice the characters were nefarious. They, the only reason they wouldn't arrest Jesus and kill him was because of popular opinion. They were simply mere, wicked, corrupt politicians. They were not religious leaders. They were not people of principle. They were just simply putting their finger up in the, in the air to see which way the wind was blowing. They were nefarious characters. Jesus was not dealing with a just society. And it just goes to show us, gentlemen, that we don't need to complain about uh, our society going this direction or that direction or things falling apart around us. That do you think somehow that releases us from an aggressive ministry to serve people around us? No, just the opposite. The worse it gets, the more urgent the calling for us to go down and lay down our lives in this city, in this nation, around the world. So we don't check out because things have gotten so bad. Some of you who are older can see certain trends in society. Some of them are going in a negative direction. Frankly, some of them are going in a positive direction, but some of them are going in a negative direction. And sometimes I hear some of us carping and complaining about it. And we just want to check out, well, these people can act like that. That's just so, so much for them. That's not the way Jesus acted. The characters were nefarious, and he gave his life to die on a cross at the hands of nefarious people to accomplish the will of God. So Jesus loves us passionately against great opposition. Let's look at verse 3. And we'll see that our response to his passion is our passion. Our response to his passion is our passion. That's what this text is showing us. Mary, uh, this woman, if if she's the same woman as as in John's account of this, Mary, perhaps uh, it was here again, the sister of Lazarus, is capturing what Jesus is doing for us and how much he loves us. And she has fallen in love with him. That's exactly what our response is to be. First of all, we see that it must be extravagant. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, made of pure nard. That's not nerd, that's nard. Made of pure nard. Now, what is this? What is this gift? Well, first of all, you can see here that from what the disciples say later, it was worth an entire year's wages. So what should you say? Twenty, twenty five thousand dollars equivalent. This was very expensive stuff. 
came from the Himalayas uh, in India, just north of India. It was transported. It was believed to be the most beautiful perfume that was anywhere in the world. And because of its value, it was put into this alabaster container. And um, we have certain uh, ancient references to alabaster where some authors said anything that's of great value is put into alabaster. So we know this was a very valued uh, commodity. This woman probably uh, had received this from her own mother. It probably was passed down through generations. It was almost like a dowry. It was like an inheritance. And if indeed this was Mary, the sister of Lazarus, we know that her father had already died and we know that she was unmarried. So when Lazarus died, that was a great tragedy for Mary and Martha because the man in their life who owned the property and gave them protection had died. Now, he had been raised from the dead, you remember, in John chapter 11. So, once again, assuming this is Mary, here's a woman who is very vulnerable to life's tragedies. Her brother's already died once. <laughs> you know, he could die again. She's not married and her father is dead. This woman's in trouble. What is her only security in this life? It's what her mother gave her to keep her out of trouble, to provide some income for her if she needed it. It's her retirement program, and it probably hung around her neck. And it was, a, it was probably a, a pound or so in, in weight, and it was her bank account, her retirement. That's probably what this was. So it was something that was very extravagant to her. That's what this gift meant to her. It was everything. Now, notice, secondly, that it was not only extravagant, but it must be irretrievable. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. She didn't say, Jesus, here's my most important commodity that I, that I own. Here's the most important thing in my life. Here's my security, my financial security. Now, I want to just say to you, Jesus, if you ever need this, you just let me know. And then put it back around her neck. That's generally what we say, isn't it? Jesus, I love that story about the rich young ruler. And I'm, I'm so glad that the proper interpretation is that I must be willing to let mine go. So I just want you to know, if you ever need my money, you just let me know. Just write it right there in the sky. It's all yours. You know that. It's all yours. She didn't do that. She broke it. It was irretrievably given over to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is very difficult to do. You know, when we own our retirement programs, we own our properties, we own our bank accounts. How do you do that? It's done every day. And it's hard work. Lord, I'm not just willing to give this to you. Lord, this is actually yours. And it's been given over to you for your purposes. That's what we're talking about. This is the proper response of someone who understands what Jesus Christ has done for us. He has given over his body. He's given over his life. He's given his all for us. And there's only one reasonable response. That's what Paul says in Romans 12. I urge you, brothers, he said, in view of what God's done for you, I urge you in view of God's mercies to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to him. For this is only spiritual or he says reasonable worship. You want to know how reasonable what reasonable worship is? Lay down your life as a sacrifice. That's only reasonable. And that's what this woman grasped. 
She understood. She gave her passion to match his passion. T.S. Eliot once said that the greatest proof of Christianity is not how far a man can logically analyze his reasons for belief, but how far in practice he will lay down his life for what he believes. That's the greatest proof of Christianity in this day is that men like you have clearly handled, handed everything over to him and you're simply managing it for his glory. That's what she was doing. She was managing his assets for his glory. In this case, she poured it out on him, everything that she had, and you can just almost smell it. This thick, aromatic perfume just suffusing the atmosphere in that house. What an offering given over to him. Well, it's important that we learn that because actually that's what worship is. We'll talk about that in a moment. Well, let's look at verses 4 and 5. Some others will see our passion as a waste. Our response to his passion is our passion, but when others look at it, what they often see is a waste. In verse 4, some will see it as fanaticism. Why this waste of perfume? Isn't that amazing? That one of the most memorable things ever done for Jesus Christ, I suppose the most memorable thing ever done for Jesus Christ in all the Scriptures, is called a waste. Not by the Pharisees, but by the disciples. That's amazing, right? Not just by Christians, but by the session, by the elders, the apostles. They call it a waste. Some people think of worship as a waste. Some people think of offerings, extravagant offerings, as a waste. Uh, Marva Dawn has written a book about worship entitled A Royal Waste of Time. Because people see time alone with the Lord or time gathering before the Lord and say, oh, y'all, y'all just get up in the morning and put on your coat and tie or whatever you put on for church and just go over there and just sing songs and it takes half a day and then you have lunch and take a Sunday afternoon. It's just one whole day wasted. Ever heard that? I've heard it. It's a waste of time from most people's perspective. And when you pour out your love for Jesus Christ, sometimes not just the watching world, but others inside the church think you've just lost a few of your marbles. They'll see it as fanaticism, that you just kind of lost your balance. You know, some of you who became Christians and your parents were not, I've heard you talk about some of their reactions, you know. Well, honey, you need Jesus and Christ. Sure, that's fine. But you need some other things, too. You know, you just need to mix it all up. And you've got Jesus in there. And he's over here. And then you've got your schoolwork. And then you've got your career. And then you instead of Jesus Christ being your all in all. And everybody wants you to categorize Jesus Christ and make your religious life just part of what you're doing. Once you make it everything, your relationship with Jesus Christ, everything, you become a fanatic. Not just in the eyes of the world, but in the eyes of most of the churches you go to. So just expect it. That's exactly what, what uh, this woman got. And then you'll notice in verse 5, some will claim it was a missed opportunity. Not only was this a, a fanatical gift, not only was it an extravagant gift, but it was not only was it a waste, but it was a missed opportunity. It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and money given to the poor. Look at the argument. Isn't this great? You shouldn't be spending so much time in worship. You should be serving the poor. You shouldn't be giving so much money 
for worship. You should be giving to the poor. You shouldn't be so excited about Christ just in your private time of reading the Bible. Get out there and do some work for the poor. Help somebody. And you see how perverted it is because it takes something that's very good. Something that's taught us over and over again in the Bible. Something that's very precious, in fact, to Jesus Christ, the poor. And uses that argument against a wholehearted devotion, extravagant devotion to Jesus Christ. How perverted. It's exactly what the disciples do. Just give it to the poor. But what they did not realize is what Jesus is going to teach them in a moment. Is that of all the poor in the world, Jesus Christ was the poorest of them all. With all the brokenness in our own age, with 1.2 billion people living on less than a dollar a day, Jesus was poorer than they. And Jesus understands their poverty. He's been there, done that. And not only that, but the poor we will always have with us, as He'll teach us. But Jesus Christ was with us physically for a moment. For 33 years. For a moment. Three years of public ministry. For a moment in that Holy Week. And this woman captured it and understood it and gave her gift to the real poor. Some, as a matter of fact, in verse 5b, will even rebuke us. Rebuke us. They rebuked her harshly. She came under church discipline because she had made such an extravagant gift. Like the widow with her two mites. You notice how amazed Jesus was at her generosity. Not the rich people who were giving enormous gifts but the poor woman who gave all she had. And here this woman seems to have given all she had for the comfort and the glory of Jesus Christ. That's what it means for us to give our passion in response to his passion. Fourthly, let's notice in verses 6 through 11 that Jesus will see our passion as a beautiful thing. So, gentlemen, in the first instance... What did this gift mean to this woman? It meant everything. It meant all of her security. It meant everything she was depending upon in this life. It meant her safety. It meant her estate. It meant her happiness from most people's perspective. What did it mean to those watching along? It meant that she was a fanatic, that she had lost her balance, that she was going overboard. What did it mean to Jesus? Something beautiful to me. Amazing thing how Jesus responded. Why did he respond this way? First of all, because our passion actually grasps his poverty. He says, the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. And notice he, he corrects these people. Leave her alone. Don't bother her. She's done a beautiful thing to me. She, she grasped my poverty. Uh, some time ago, I was reading a book by Ronald Rollheiser, who is a, uh, is a Catholic Monk, if I remember this correctly. I believe he's, yes, he's a monk. And uh, Rollheiser has one of the most beautiful descriptions of, uh, he, he writes a chapter, you know, the book is The Holy Longing, and he writes a chapter on sex. You think, this is going to be interesting, a chapter on sex by a monk. Really great. So, uh, but it's one of the most profound treatments of sex I've ever read from a Christian. And uh, Rollheiser says, look, let's ask ourselves the question, why do you think Jesus was single? And he has two answers, as I remember. One is, he says, Jesus was single because he was identifying with the poor. And Jesus became poor in every way, including the poverty of intimate relations, sexual relations. 
So he abstained because he completely identified with the lonely, with those who are outcasts, with those who are marginalized, and those who are poor. So, as we've said, of all those in the world who are poor, Jesus was the poorest of them all. He had nowhere to lay his head. You know, the scriptures say that. He had no home. He was an itinerant. He was a migrant worker, if you will. And he had no place. He had no, had no estate at all and had no marriage, had no blood family, uh, except for the one he came from. The second reason uh, Rollheiser says, which is a very interesting speculation to me, he says the reason that Jesus was single and didn't give himself to one woman was so that he could give himself to the world. Now, isn't that interesting? Here is a real purpose in impoverishing oneself. It's so that you can make everybody else rich. It's just not so that you can be poor along with everybody else, but so that you can be, become poor in order to make them rich. Jesus didn't give himself to a woman so that he could give himself to you, to his entire church, which is his bride. A marvelous description of the, of the whole purpose of Jesus living life out in this world. And it would be great for us who are single and married to do the same. Our passion, though, as we respond to him, we understand something of his poverty and why he became poor in order to enrich us. And that's the reason that we're extravagant and irretrievable in our giving. Secondly, our passion grasps his mission. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. So he's saying this woman in some, some way, God has enabled her to understand that I'm going to my death. And gentlemen, bodies were anointed for burial unless they were criminals. And then they were usually thrown in common graves and they were not anointed. And so Jesus was going to die as a criminal. And here is a woman who had mercy upon him. Imagine that, having mercy upon Jesus Christ. Sounds almost impossible to say. But here's a woman who grasped his poverty, grasped his purpose, that he was coming to die for us. And so often people in churches around this city are trying to understand Jesus Christ apart from his cross. You'll never get there from here. You'll never understand him. You'll never have a passion for him. If you don't understand that his cross was experienced in your place, you were supposed to die on that cross. You would have died on that cross. You would be judged. You would be facing all the judgments that are in Mark chapter 13 if Jesus Christ hadn't laid down his life for you. This woman got it somehow. And she anointed him knowing that he was going to his own burial. Marvelous. That's the reason the Apostle Paul often says, I resolve to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. May I never boast about anything, he said to the Galatians, except for Jesus Christ and His cross. So this passion that we have grasps His mission. Thirdly, our passion is a continuing memorial. This is truly a remarkable and a unique statement. It's a unique statement. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This word or phrase, in memory of, do you realize there's only one other place in the Bible where it is mentioned? It's mentioned on the context of Maundy Thursday night, this day, at the Last Supper, when Jesus gave us the bread and the cup, and He said, do this in memory of me. That's the only other place you'll find this phrase. And He is putting this woman's gift along with His as a continuing memorial. 
His body, or rather the bread and the cup, are memorials of His body and blood. And He's saying, this woman's gift will be a memorial of the church's passion for me throughout the ages. And guess what? It has been because this Monday Thursday, we're not only talking about Jesus, we're talking about the woman and her gift. And indeed, it has continued as a memorial to Him and to the passion of His church for Him throughout the ages. And our passion will as well. Lastly, our passion is a beautiful contrast to a sinful world. When we show our passion for Him, when we give over our lives and our estates for Him, when we hand it all over to Him, of course, He hands it back to us and tells us to manage it. He does manage it through us. We ask to have the mind of Christ so that we are managing our lives, our time, our energy, our bodies, everything for His glory. And the beauty of it is that it's being done in a contrast to a sinful world. Now, gentlemen, we've got one minute. Let me just close out this way. This woman made a remarkable gift. It was extravagant. It was irretrievably given. And the disciples said, what a waste. And Jesus said something beautiful to me. The same thing is going to happen at the end of the ages. When all of humanity, as Jesus has described in Mark chapter 13, is gathered before his throne and he in all of his glory is judge. And he will look at human life after human life that hung on to the things that God put into their hands and spent them only for themselves and were focused on their own carnal pleasure. And he will say, in effect, what a waste. On the other hand, he'll look at his sheep, his lambs, who have come to understand something of his passion, something of his mission in life, and who have in their own feeble way just simply repented of their sins and given their life to him and say, Lord, I trust you, your work on the cross for me. Please help me to live my life for you. It's just that simple. And he will look at this ragtag band and he will say of them something beautiful to me. It's that simple. It's through Christ. And this woman got it. And it's a lesson and a memorial for men of all ages and all times. Let us pray. Father, uh, we thank you for sending your son to lay down his life for us. and We're thankful for this glimpse into the heart of a real believer who grasps what your poverty, Lord Jesus, was all about. And who responds with gratitude. We pray that you'll help us this day in every relationship, every conversation, every business dealing, every Word of every hymn that we sing in church, Lord, may it be something beautiful to you. For it would be our passion, extravagantly and irretrievably poured out upon your head for your everlasting glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.